That night, the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican, and I'm joined today by Father Isaac Rayberg. Hi, I'm Father Isaac Rayberg. I'm the uh, rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio, Texas, and the canon for liturgy in the Diocese of Cano West. So glad to be here today. Excellent. Just for the listener's sake, this is an essay that um, if you're listening through our website, it should show in the show notes uh, where you can follow along and read with us. But this essay appears as the front matter for a volume, a sort of compendium of uh, original sources from 17th century Anglican divines called Anglicanism. And uh, we've been trucking through this essay, the first three uh, sections, and we're about to begin section Roman numeral four. And uh, I will just go ahead and read this first segment here, and we'll uh, pick it apart and see if there are any good nuggets of wisdom or, uh, you know, bad nuggets of offense that we have to say no to. So, either way. Miserable offense. That's right. Sources of miserable offense. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure there will be many. Yeah. Let's see. (laughs) The distinction between fundamentals and accessories, or, in the more usual language of the day, between things necessary for salvation and things convenient in practice was clearly drawn by Hooker and recurs constantly through the ensuing literature. The fundamentals are few and revealed. The accessories are indeterminate and more or less dependent on human invention. So, Jeremy Taylor declares that the intendment of his discourse on the liberty of prophesying is that men should not, quote, not make more necessities than God made, which indeed are not many, end quote. For the Anglicans of the 17th century, those few things necessary for salvation were summed up conveniently in the creeds, particularly in the so-called Apostles' Creed. And for the truth of this creed, they appealed as did other Christians, to the double authority of tradition and scripture. They held the common belief that the twelve articles of the creed went back to the actual apostles, each one of whom made his individual contribution to the formula, and so handed on the deposit of the faith to the keeping of successive generations. But behind the creed, guaranteeing its truth and its general conformity, 
the authority of tradition where right and correcting it when astray was the sacred canon of written books. For this reason, Chillingworth, while allowing due weight to tradition in its place, could speak of the Bible as the religion, and, in case of dispute, the sole religion of Protestants. I am fully assured, he quotes, he wrote, that God does not, and therefore that men ought not to require any more of any man than this, to believe scripture to be God's word, to endeavor to find the true sense of it, and to live according to it, end quote. And he who looks for the plain, indisputable sense of the Bible will discover that it consists not in a complicated web of theological propositions, nor in subtleties of definition, but simply in the presentation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, who was born and lived and died for the salvation of the world. Yeah, that, of course, is uh, echoes of some of the things we see in the Articles of Religion. Um, of course, uh, Article 6 of the Sufficiency of Holy Scripture for Salvation. You know, uh, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of faith, or thought requisite or necessary to salvation. And then um, Article 20, the authority of the church, um, where uh, kind of halfway through that says, Wherefore, all the, although the church be witness and keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed, to be believed for the necessity of salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think... Uh, it's really interesting to see more sort of setting up these themes that we are familiar with through the 39 articles, but as they sort of may have developed as simply the, the theological convictions of, of these 17th century divines. Um, and, I, and I did, yeah, he, he, he does begin this section with that distinction, doesn't he, between fundamentals and accessories, so to speak. Have y'all read that Jeremy Taylor uh, essay or the Der Jeremy Taylor book? I've read excerpts from it actually in this uh, book, Anglicanism. Um, but I don't, you know, my memory of it is pretty hazy. How about yourself? Um, I have not, but I, I do. I, I think this is probably important to point out in, uh, in, in kind of our context today. Um, prophesying in those days was not what we think of in kind of more charismatic circles today, but it was uh, sure. it was a synonym for preaching from what I understand. Right. Yep. That's, that is definitely my understanding as well. Uh, yeah. And so, so really to take with that understanding and um, to take the, the title, the Liberty of Prophesying, um, in context of uh, w even what you just uh, quoted from the 39 articles, delineating sort of the ra the realm of the authority of the church, you get this sense of um, a desire to 
say how far the church can go and no further, um, it, which was obviously a concern for um, all of the churches of the Reformation, which, you know, a major complaint being that the Church of Rome had overstepped its bounds. Yeah, I think the uh, Lutherans like the phrase um, you, that you cannot bind the conscience uh, with anything that is not in Scripture. And, and I, I found that's a very helpful pastoral um, guideline. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and, and it's interesting because as Anglicans, when we sort of survey the landscape of American religion, sometimes we see ourselves as, um, well, we're, we're the ones who really appreciate tradition or, or even, you know, the authority of, of bishops and priests and, and whatnot. And so sometimes to see this uh, limiting, especially if you're coming from uh, an Anglo-Catholic perspective, maybe to say, well, look, this is the only thing that, that can be um, sort of declared on our conscience is what can be found in scripture. And, you know, I, I get, I can see that as maybe coming as a shock to certain people. Oh, certainly. Um, yeah. But the, the reasons here and, and when you really think about it, it, it I find it very refreshing um, just to say, wow, you know, when it really boils down to it, um, nothing is required that can't be found in scripture. Yeah. You know, this is, it's not a, it's not a minimalism because, Hey, scripture says a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think sometimes, uh, Christians coming from a more traditional denomination, uh, maybe are, um, not as uh, good at being sort of familiar with what scripture says because um, there's less pressure if, if it's not the only thing for instance if you don't have tradition as sort of a, a, uh, a secondary source or a, a sub source to help interpret scripture um, then there can be less pressure to be familiar with it but I think um, uh you know, a, a familiarity with Holy Writ will, with, with a certain historic mindset in place, can very much uh, deliver a, the, a Catholic faith and religion, you know, far more than people realize. And at the same time, we, we do have this very Anglican understanding, and it's not, it's not unique to us, of course, but um, in the first part of Article 20, you know, the church hath power to decree rites and ceremonies and authority and controversies of faith. Mm -hmm. You know, so there is authority there, but it's a limited authority. And so, I, you know, for, for example, you know, I, I have in very intentionally in my time as, as, a, as a rector, as a pastor, um, uh, limited myself to the classical book of common prayer so that it would be a discipline on me not to do my own thing. And that, 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 so it's kind of a covenant between me and the, and the parish that um, I'm not going to go beyond my bounds and turn it into St. Isaac's Church, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be interesting if uh, the parishioners, you know, came up Sunday morning and, and there's Father Isaac painting a new sign. 
so glad you could join us. <laughs> right, that that would definitely be pushing beyond the bounds. And and obviously, um, there's the old sort of Roman Catholic critique of Protestantism, which is to say that without a pope, you know, you have set up for yourselves a plethora of popes, so to right, speak. Right, right. And um, really, actually, this, this statement here from Moore, reflecting the attitude of the time, but also the statements that sort of say it more clearly from our formularies, do a good job of kind of putting that myth to rest, I think. Um, certainly, there are, uh, there's a variety of interpretations on certain passages of the Bible, but the fact that the, the most trustworthy source is curtailed in this way to what can be found in Scripture is actually, you know, limiting in a lot of ways. And um, it, it doesn't mean that anybody can be their own pope and just say anything they want, um, which, you know, it has been, I think, and without any disrespect to Roman Catholic friends, has been a source of real, frankly, sorrow for um, the Roman Church and for people who've maybe belonged to that church in moments of change when... Um, someone decided that this is what the tradition means now, right. you know, and, and uh, whatever we believed before is no longer the case. So, yeah, I, I, it, makes, it makes being part of a Protestant tradition, I would, you know, to restate, uh, very refreshing. And at the same time, to be part of the Anglican branch of Protestant Christendom, is to have these sort of safeguards really clearly set out. And um, yeah, what's not to love about that? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, do you see anything else in there that maybe bears? One, one thing I thought of when reading it was when he's talking about the creeds as sort of what does he say? For for the Anglicans of the 17th century, those few things necessary for salvation were summed up conveniently in the creeds. Um, I could see someone maybe of a like a staunch kind of radical grace perspective saying, "Whoa, whoa! Isn't isn't our faith supposed to be in?" Uh, the saving power of Jesus, rather than these articles of the creed, etc. How would you answer that kind of critique? Uh, th that's that's a great question, and um, uh, we're we're in our uh, discipleship class, midweek discipleship. We're currently going through the early ecumenical councils, which play a big development, especially in, in the beginning, on um, the Nicene Creed in particular, but the theology that gets articulated in the creeds. Uh, the development of those dogmas, those must-believe issues. And um, mm -hmm. what, what has come out again and again in looking at those early controversies was that a, a, a faith in a Jesus that's not the Jesus described in the creeds, a God not described in the creeds, is a problematic faith because that Jesus is incapable of saving. 
And so, right. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the faith of, of the Jesus in Mormonism is not going to do Right, good, and the big right? thing, especially in that, that kind of uh, fourth, fifth century context, um, you know, their understanding of salvation was being united to Christ. That was the really important thing. And because you're united to Christ, you're reconciled to God. And so if, if you don't have a Jesus who is fully divine, fully man, uh, born of a virgin, ascended into heaven, and all those other things, he is incapable of fully reconciling you to God because you might be united with him, but if he's not God, who cares? You know, and it, or, if, or if he is right. not man, you can't be united to him. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It really does sort of point out, and maybe, um, you know, as Protestant Christians, or, you know, if you have friends in evangelical circles, very often we forget how um, evangelical and Jesus-centric these creeds are. (laughs) You know, I mean, the source of these controversies, as you point out, was... Um, really about these really important details of who Jesus was, how he relates to humanity, how he relates to the Godhead. And um, yeah, as you really put well, all of that matters when you decide you want to put your faith in someone called Jesus. Is it the guy down the street named Jesus or is it the Jesus of Mormonism or that prophet that uh, the Muslims seem to be sort of fond <laughs> of, or you know, there's more than one Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's a great point. I think that's a great answer to that question. So, yeah, that, that was just something that struck, struck me is, you know, I, I'm always sort of trying to listen to these, uh, listen to myself when I speak Anglican with maybe... A, a Lutheran ear or right. a Presbyterian ear or something. Well, and one know. of my uh, the um, uh, the priest that kind of oversaw some of my um, my postulancy, uh, Father Chris Richardson, uh, he used to say all the time, uh, 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 "Theology must precede doxology. You can't properly worship if you don't really hmm. know who you're worshiping." Yeah, I mean, what a what a interesting interplay there is there between. Um, worship and belief and uh, obviously that's kind of become, I mean it's always been an issue for Anglicanism with the famous uh, Lex Orande, Lex Credendi um, which is not, I don't think a contradiction of of the statement that you just made I think what it means, it's sort of the litmus test which is to say well, let's see how these people worship so we can figure yes, out what absolutely. they believe. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, very interesting stuff and, um, and really cool to see more sort of putting out um, the evangelical and Protestant uh, sort of reliance on Scripture here, um, which, you know, I, I, in my experience, not everyone who is a fan of the Anglican divines necessarily is in a hurry to underscore uh, the more reformed and Protestant character. And so it's it's nice to see him do that here and kind of, uh, you know, give a, 
you could say, an even appraisal or a fair appraisal, a rounded appraisal of who they were and, and what they were. And of course, that's kind of uh, for us at the North American Anglican, and then I would. Uh, uh, look at folks in the Davenant Institute as well who are looking, when they look into Anglicanism, um, you know, that's a big part of why we're doing what we're doing is so that we can see that, you know, Reformed Catholic, you know, it, it goes together in the classical sense. You know, we don't have to pit these things mm -hmm. against each other. Um, and by having those things not pitted against each other, Absolutely. we actually refrain from excesses. <laughs> Right, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Well, um, on that note, I'm going to hand the uh, reading over to you, Father, with, uh, was it certainly no Anglican? All right. And uh, let's see if we can uncover some more Indeed. nuggets of truth here. Certainly no Anglican divine of the 17th century, if questioned, would have admitted that faith in the Incarnation as the one thing necessary could be divested of such accessories as the virgin birth and the literal ascension into heaven, which are included in the creed and based on the record of scripture. But three quotations from the beginning, the middle, and the end of our period will show how the continued emphasis on what is fundamental was leading the church in the direction of an utter simplicity. Hooker, commenting on the text, these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, declares that the drift of Holy Scripture is to make men wise for salvation, the Old Testament by teaching of him who should come, the New by teaching that the Savior is actually come. In the same vein, and more emphatically, Cudworth asserts that, quote, the gospel is nothing else but God descending into the world in our form and conversing with us in our likeness, unquote, in, quote, uh, in order that he might deify us, that is, as St. Peter expresseth it, make us partakers of the divine nature. And South, carrying, carrying on, and so to speak, closing the process of simplification, affirms that the fundamentals are embraced in a single article of faith, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, that sort of... Uh... <laughs> dials in this point that we ju we're just at labor to make, I guess. <laughs> but it does it really well, I think. <laughs> yes, indeed. Those, uh, those quotations are great. Yeah, you know, I, I, I very much agree with all of that. And I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little um, uh, wary, kind of, kind of wondering where, uh, where he's going with that um, seeming critique about uh, utter simplification. Um, I, I certainly don't think that is necessary to have an utter simplification, mm -hmm. but I do think it's good to have, okay, can you sum up the faith in a sentence? Can you do it in a 30-second elevator speech? Sure. Can you do it in a five-minute presentation? You know, that sort of thing. I think that's very important. Right, and you can leave out certain details safely insofar as what you are saying remains true. And at least, I would say, reflects um, the, whole, the whole truth, you could say. <laughs> um, there are other things that could be right. said, but, but this isn't going to mislead someone, I guess you could say. Right, exactly. But yeah, I think that, you know, he, he begins with, uh, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and then 
ending up with Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely what we were talking about. You know, if you have faith in anybody else named Jesus, that just isn't going to cut it. Sorry, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, it is it is important to see that the creeds were not seen as just sort of um, a sort of dead tradition or some sort of lofty dogmatic statements that it was just really important for everyone to be able to recite, but know that this was all to safely deliver Jesus to the believer or make men wise to I, salvation, as, they, as uh, Moore puts it. And I very much appreciate, especially Hooker, um, the way that he, he, he uh, talks about the drift of Holy Scripture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Old Testament teaching who would come, the new by teaching that he is here. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a really good guideline for, uh, for, for preaching and for teaching, mm -hmm. that if it's not Christocentric, we're liable to drift off into moralism or into um, uh, complete eisegesis, reading ourselves into the text, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and again, it, it, it goes back to something that's in the Articles of Religion, in Article 7, um, that uh, both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't have two different stories. It's one big story. Right. No, no Marcionism or, <laughs> and, and, I, right. and I do find that that is, uh, kind of a trend in modern evangelicalism, which is to say, um, you know, old Testament God, mean, bad, new Testament God, good, nice. And, um, yeah. you can't really understand Jesus unless you understand him when he was not incarnate in when he was present in the Old Testament. And, and I think that's absolutely an important key. You have to look at the whole picture. And what do you, here's, here I am listening with another sort of um, traditions ear, but um, the, this statement that uh, the drift of Holy Scripture is to make men wise for salvation. Now I'm hearing that and I can see maybe uh, Oh, someone who's a fan of N.T. Wright, you could say, or maybe someone of a more Catholic drift saying, well, see, there you, there you Protestants go. You want to make everything about, um, about your personal salvation and not this big picture of redeeming the world and et cetera, et cetera. Do you kind of know the critique that I'm speaking of? Yes, yeah, and, and and I think that's that's one of those areas where, where where again we can have the greater tradition of of the church informs things. Um, you know that that's that understanding of salvation is really a caricature from um, relatively modern evangelicalism mm -hmm. and probably a particularly American or at least Western form of that right um because i mean i i would yeah i i don't think at all that hooker was was you know talking about uh, you know the whole goal is for you know 
me, myself, and I to, to be saved, and whatever else happens, who cares, you know? No, yeah, I, I'm sure that, that um, these guys especially had a far more sort of uh, societal perspective than maybe, you know, um, Americans would even be capable of with our, in our modern sort of uh, segmented lifestyles and in a lot of ways I think that that critique almost reads the contemporary problems back into these 16th century writers I would agree um, yeah yeah because I just have a hard time thinking that I mean no matter what you believe about um, whether or not the kingdom of God is at hand and that that is the beginning of the renewal of the world and, and I'm certainly on board with that um, I still don't think that St. Paul was like, which means that it you shouldn't be worried about whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. <laughs> you know? Right, right. It's like, okay, well, was there a balance between these concerns? Maybe, but I, I don't think that um, it is like in a... Uh, the reformers were laying something extra on the text by recognizing this very human concern that the text that the New Testament certainly addresses, which is to say, what's going to happen to me? Am I good with God? You know, I mean, I think those are um, not contemporary or modernist worries. I think those are human worries. And I think there's a certain, you know, the, the, the emphasis in the Reformation tradition, whether from the what becomes the more distinctly reformed or the more distinctly Lutheran end of things and wherever mm -hmm. we as traditional, you know, classical Anglicans right. fall in that spectrum. Little this, little that. Um, yeah, little, exactly. <laughs> little, little church fathers, um, a little, little of that too. Right, right. Uh, but I, I do think the, that emphasis from the Reformation period on the assurance of salvation actually empowers us to do good in, in, in our vocations. Um, because if we're not so worried about are my good works getting me saved you know you know because because the good works are the result of justification not a contributor to justification if 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 if, if we're if we're if we're assured in our justification mm -hmm. based on on our on our faith based on our baptism then our good works can be cleansed from that selfish I'm trying to 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 get in better with God mentality, and we can actually have our vocation lived out for our neighbor. Absolutely, you know, God doesn't need us in our vocation, but our neighbor does. Right, you know that that kind of thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the the Protestant um, view of our relationship with God is is maybe closer to the nat the natural view of say your relationship with your spouse. Which is right. to say, because our relationship is secure, I want to do things that please you, that make you happy, that that will give you a better life, or that you know that I know will be pleasing to you, as opposed to if you can imagine um, an engagement that lasts until your dying day. And then if you did enough good things, they'll marry you and then you both die or something. You know? Right. <laughs> or, or it's determined that you get a little, yeah, maybe we'll get married in purgatory. You know? Right, <laughs> right. Still got to work some things That's out. terrible. 
So I mean, I mean, I really, I do think that, um, yeah, the the gospel perspective, which is to say that because I'm loved, I now even know how to love, um, is so much better than, like you said, the 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 concern over my final destination becoming an obsession with me and therefore every good thing I do I'm wor I'm worried about where you know how that's going to help me tally up uh, <laughs> or um, shore up my account or uh, so to speak and and of course the important thing to remember too is that this is a problem that was being addressed by the reformers that had been right. developed by the late medieval church and so and they there didn't is a, there is a come up with it and and there is a different mentality in, in, in modern Roman Catholics that I've seen anyway, at least at least relatively well-informed Roman Catholics, uh, when it does come to these issues, where, um, which, which is very different than the way it was in the, in the late Middle Ages and the, the early modern period, uh, where a lot of them that I've talked to look at purgatory almost as a comfort because it's like, well, sure. okay, I might screw up, but at least God's given me purgatory so that um, I know I'll it's, eventually it's get to It's a bonus level, right? Yeah. Right. So <laughs> and so, funny. so that, that almost adds, it's ironic that it, that for, for some Catholics I know, it, Roman Catholics I know, it, it almost becomes an assurance of salvation. Right. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. It's a good point. Yeah. And, you know, all of, obviously there's a lot that can be unpacked there and we can um, delineate the differences between um, the Reformed Catholic view of soteriology and the uh, Roman view that was being rejected. Um, but I do think this emphasis on, you know, where do I stand before the creator of the universe is... It's fair to say that the reformers didn't invent that concern. Right. And it, I think it's also fair to say that it's a valid concern, <laughs> even if you right. have other concerns for creation renewal and so on, um, that that doesn't stop this other one from being important. So anyways, I, I do think that's a, a common critique and uh, it's a good to get those discussions out here but I think I'm gonna start in on this next section here starting with just how literally and uh, it's kind of a long one but uh, therefore I'm sure we'll find plenty to talk about <laughs> all right just how literally such statements should be taken may be a matter of debate but the direction in which the leading divines of England were moving cannot be missed by any unprejudiced reader of the literature. And it is certain that in thus isolating the few things or the one thing in the Bible necessary for salvation, they say themselves place they saw themselves placed between the two fires of Romanist and Puritan. In their controversy with the former, it was a question of tradition. To the Anglicans, the value of tradition was measured by its tenacity of the original depositum fide. It was not that they rejected the principle of development utterly, 
but that in matters fundamental they limited its competence to an interpretation of dogma held strictly at every step to the test of scripture. Usher, for instance, is definite on this point when he denies that any tradition should be accepted for parcels of God's word, that is, as demanding implicit belief, beside the holy scriptures and such doctrines as are either expressly therein contained or by sound inference may be deduced from thence. That's uh, the end of the quote there. Now the admission of, quote, sound inference as a canon of truth may seem to transfer the weight of authority from the book itself to the interpreter of the book. But practically, the issue was clear and sharp. The quarrel with Rome was because of her practice of extending the fundamentals of faith by increments on the warrant of her own inspired authority, and so of creating, as it were, instead of obeying tradition. South was voicing the common view of all Protestants when he made the specific charge, quote, the Church of Rome has, in this respect, sufficiently declared the little value she has for the old Christian truth. By the new upstart articles, she has added to it, end quote. And Newman was merely repeating what he had learned from the Caroline Divines when he criticized the Council of Trent and the creed of Pope Pius IV because, quote, after adding to it, i.e. the Apostles' Creed, the recognition of the seven sacraments, transubstantiation, purgatory, the invocation of saints, image worship, and indulgences, the Romanist declares, quote, this true Catholic faith, out of which no one can be saved, do I promise, vow, and swear most constantly to retain and confess whole and inviolate to the last breath of life, end quote. Well, yeah, a there we go. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the uh, th- that is the thing, you know, of, of adding to this word, so to speak. And it's the problem isn't tradition in of itself; it's when tradition claims more authority than it ought to have. Right, and I love the way he says that. Um, you know, what does he say? Sound inference as a canon of truth may seem to transfer the weight of authority from the book itself to the interpreter of the book, but practically the issue was clear and sharp. And I find that so often to be the case. When I'm debating these issues with Roman Catholic friends, it's always like, well, you guys, have, you, you have to admit that the Reformation doctrines were a development of something that was there before, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, yeah, but the, what's really important here is the differences themselves. Right. And specifically, the doctrines that the Roman Church has chosen to elevate as um, tradition, as necessary to be believed for salvation, etc. Um, you know, it's just, there's a difference between... Um, Believing that we are saved by faith alone and believing and saying that, well, you have to believe in purgatory. Right. Right. Something that's found in the New Testament and something that 
absolutely it's not. <laughs> right. And, and even even when you can, you know, get some proof texts for purgatory that you have to kind of assume purgatory to see that in the proof texts. Um, right. You know, in, in, in the most recent dogmas, Rome even has gone beyond that with, you know, the, the papal infallibility when speaking ex cathedra, uh, the Immaculate oh, Conception right. of yeah. Mary, and things that, okay, that some of those may have been relatively pious beliefs for a long time, but there is no word at all in Scripture. I mean, that's, that's and to make and, them and must it, believe, that's really problematic. Yeah, and, and it's even worse than that. I mean, authorities as important as St. Thomas Aquinas argued vehemently against the Immaculate Conception. Right. I mean, this is this is a tradition turned on itself, right? In the modern form, and I mean that's just on a pastoral level. That's disastrous to the souls of the laity, and I think if you actually read sort of the reports from the Council of Trent, but also these modern uh, Vatican One and Vatican Two, the really interesting accounts is when you have devout. Roman Catholic churchmen arguing against the dogma that's about to become official. Right. And I was just, you know, when I read some of those accounts, I just feel terrible for these guys. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I also th just think, boy, you might want to try Anglicanism. Right. It's, it's not a bad way to well, go. <laughs> and I have a feeling if, if Newman had been around uh, for Vatican I, I don't think he would have become a Roman Catholic. Because the kinds well, of things that he was yeah, it, that he was arguing were, were were very against what happens in Vatican I. Well, that's that's absolutely right, and and there's the famous story where, so he he poped before Vatican I. I, I say poped in, in a non-pejorative term. I just <laughs> only to say that he became Roman Catholic, uh, but then when the doctrine of papal infallibility um, became official, something that he was very much against, sort of fighting against throughout. Um, there's this story where uh, he was the guest at a dinner, and and someone made the you know the the to the doctrine of papal infallibility, and and uh, and glasses were raised and toasts to the pope, and uh, and he raised his glass and said. To conscience and drink. <laughs> right, right. I forgot about that. <laughs> so, and and what's funny is is you can hear like on you know EWTN or whatever they'll say, and look, this is the this is just the seeds of the Roman Catholic doctrine of being true to your conscience. I'm like, what? Come on. <laughs> let's let's uh, read this story in context, right, guys. Right. Well, and the, the classic example of um, something that's inferred that, that, that I always bring up um, when kind of expounding, you know, the, the previously mentioned articles and, and, and the 39 articles is the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, it, it, it is absolutely true. You're not going to find it spelled out explicitly in Scripture, but you can't come to any other proper conclusion. Yeah, and... and um... And the difference between a doctrine like the Trinity and a, another doctrine like, oh, the Immaculate Conception or, or the Assumption of Mary or something along those lines is just so night and day when it comes to right. its theological importance that um, 
you know, I think that, uh, again, the difference is not so much in theory as it is in practice, and the way that when theory is put into practice in certain ways, it kind of changes the theory. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is a really, a really uh, great segment. I really appreciated the way he um, made it applicable to this sort of Roman Catholic and Anglican slash Protestant debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, and on that note, I think we're we should probably cut this section in two, as close as halfway marks go, and uh, pick up the next, uh, the rest of Roman numeral four in our next episode. How's that sound? That sounds great. It's been a pleasure, and I uh, hope to be here for the next one. Absolutely. It's been, the pleasure has been all on this side, Father. Good talking to you. Likewise. God bless. Bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.